Let's pray together. Father, we need you. There is nothing that we can accomplish that is of value apart from you. We have no righteousness in ourselves. We have no ability to find salvation. We have no opportunity to please you apart from you, apart from Christ himself who has come, who has lived a perfect sinless life, who has, who has died a sinner's death, who has risen again to give us life. And so, Father, today we cast ourselves at your feet, knowing that we have nothing to offer to you, we have nothing of value to bring to you, and yet you desire us. You call us to come and to give of ourselves, to give of our time, to give of our hearts. This is our spiritual act of worship. And so, Lord, please bless this time today. Open our ears, open our hearts to your word that we would be changed by it. That Christ would be made much of in us, in his people today. Father, please bless the words that I speak. Use them for the good of your people. In Christ's name, amen. Turn, if you would, to the Gospel of Mark chapter 11. Gospel of Mark chapter 11. We're going to begin today in verse 27, Mark chapter 11, verse 27. And if you grabbed a bulletin or one of our sermon guides from the back table, you'll, you'll know that today's sermon is entitled, All Authority. Last week, we saw Jesus recognized as the King by the people of Jerusalem, as he entered into the city, riding on a donkey's colt. The people laid their garments on the road. They pulled branches from the, from the trees and laid them down on the road. And they shouted, Hosanna! Save us! This is the King. But the problem was they did not understand Jesus as the right kind of King. You see, they were looking for a militant, triumphant king who was going to overthrow their enemies and establish them as the ruler of all creation. What they got was a carpenter's son riding into town on a baby donkey. A town that, has, that he has repeatedly said is going to be the scene of his death. They're going to arrest him and torture him and beat him and kill him in this place. Despite the people's seeming acceptance and exaltation of Jesus as king, in reality, the vast majority of them do not recognize him as a true king because they reject his authority over every aspect of their lives. You see, Jesus, last week, we saw him illustrate his authority over all things by cleansing the temple, the center of Jewish religious practice, had become overrun with worldly people seeking gain and was tolerated and even encouraged by a people whose hearts were far more interested in checking off boxes than actually worshiping God. 
And that leads us to today's passage. And what we're going to see today is that Jesus' authority, while rejected by the religious leaders in particular, is not given by men. So their rejection doesn't make His authority any less, but their rejection does bear tremendous consequences. So let's look together at Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 27, where first we'll see authority by nature. If you have one of our sermon guides, that's our first point, authority by nature. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 27, says this, And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Last week we saw Jesus on his way to the temple curse a fig tree. And we talked about how that tree had the appearance of fruitfulness from a distance The tree had leaves, and fig trees, when they have leaves, are supposed to have fruit. But when Jesus got close, there was no fruit, and he cursed the tree. It's an image of the Jewish people who have the outward appearance of worshiping God, but inwardly don't have actual worship of God. And so Jesus says to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and the next day, So they go from there, he cleanses the temple, and then they go back to Bethany. And the next day, when they pass by the tree, it is completely withered down to its roots. And our text today picks up immediately after the disciples and Jesus see the tree withered away, and they go back to the temple. Now remember, just yesterday, yesterday in our text, Jesus went through the temple chasing people with a homemade whip. He was so furiously angry at what he found in the temple that he chased them all away, shouting at them about how they had turned the house of prayer for all the nations into a den of robbers. And Jesus, remember, this is where he's going to get killed, and they're going back to the temple, and all the disciples are probably going, is this it? Is this when it's going to happen? Because I know people are mad about what happened yesterday, and we're going back to the temple. So he goes back. And while he is in the temple, he is approached by the religious leaders and the elders of the community. These are all people of status and authority. They are all important people. And they come to Jesus and they have a question for him. They say, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? Essentially, the question they're asking Jesus is, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to come in here and flip over tables and chase people away, cracking a whip around? Who do you think you are? Now, while this question may not be completely out of bounds, because these people genuinely believe that they have God-given authority 
to protect the things of God. They genuinely believe it is their responsibility to make sure things in the temple proceed as God intended. Now, they're not, but they don't understand that. But so their question's not entirely out of bounds, but it is most assuredly a trap that they're trying to lay for Jesus. And we know this because first, it is what they have repeatedly done in the past. When, when the religious leaders, when these people come to Jesus and they have a question for him, it is always them trying to trick Jesus into saying something that's going to get him into trouble. Secondly, Jesus' response to them gives away that it's a trap. Remember that Jesus knows all things, including the secret thoughts of their hearts. Oftentimes when we read the Bible, when we're reading through the Gospels in particular, we might kind of breeze past some of these things, but you will be stunned to recognize how often Jesus comments on things that he should not know, on things that they are thinking or feeling on discussions that they are having amongst themselves apart from him. He often talks about these things in ways that he should not know. And yet there are still people who will tell you, we don't know that Jesus is God. Makes no sense. But so Jesus knows that they're trying to trap him. And so they want to know, where does your authority come from? Who do you think you are to get to do this? And what they're really trying to do is they're trying to get Jesus to either say, A, God gave him this authority, which they could use to then bring him up on charges of blasphemy, lying about God. If Jesus says, God told me, God gave me authority to do this, they can go, see, he claims that God gave him this authority, and there's no proof of that. He's a blasphemer. Or maybe Jesus will say, the people gave me this authority. Didn't you see yesterday when I was coming into town and they were all calling me the king? They were laying down their garments on the road. Didn't you see that? The people gave me this authority. It comes from man. And if that's his answer, they can use it to discredit him. Because how could men give someone the authority to disrupt the temple in such a way? The men have no authority over the things of God. So if, it come, if he says it comes from God, they can say you're a blasphemer. If they say it comes from man, they can say he's overstepped his bounds. And both things are worthy of death. But Jesus, doing what he loves to do, answers their question with a question. He does this so often, they ask him a question, and he asks them one right back. And he tells them, if you answer my question, I'll answer yours. When you really think about it, it is amusing that these men, as smart as they may be, think that they can outmaneuver the one who knows all things. We really got him this time. We're really going to trick him and trap him this time. And so Jesus asked them this question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? It's a very similar question to what they asked him. It's a different subject because it's John instead of himself, but it's a very similar question. Where does John's ministry come from? He wants to know, was John's ministry from God or from man? Which was it? Now, this is especially significant because John's primary purpose in his ministry was to herald the coming of Jesus. 
He was out in the wilderness preaching repentance because the kingdom of God is at hand. And just last week, who did we see? The king from the kingdom of God coming in to Jerusalem. So John's ministry was all about Jesus. The people didn't understand that. John did. John understood it. John said, there is one coming after me who is so much greater than I that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Now this is a problematic question for the leaders. It's very problematic. Because they rejected John, just like they have rejected Jesus. They, have, they rejected him outright. And so if they admit, rightly, that John's ministry is from God, then Jesus has them in a trap because they didn't believe John. If they say, well, it came from God, Jesus is going to say, well, why didn't you believe him, guys? And it's especially significant, remember, because if they believe John, they will also believe Jesus. But if they say what they really think, that John was hyped up by the people and not truly from God, then they fear that the people are going to rise up and kill them. You see, these men in all their power and authority understood that it could all change like that. You get one crowd the wrong kind of mad and you end up under a pile of rocks. They get it. And so they're stuck. They can't say from God. They can't say from man. So they answer in the only way that spineless men can. They say, oh, I don't know. Maybe he's from God. Maybe he's from man. Who's to say? These men who are so firm in everything that they think who are so solid in everything that they believe, chicken out. Jesus never chickens out. No matter how many times they try to trap him, no matter how many times he might say something that's going to weird people out or even make them angry, he does not chicken out. This is the same Jesus that after he fed the 5,000, when the people are crowding around him and saying, give us more food, Jesus says, hey, if you want more food, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And people are like, um, not down with eating people, man. This is not for me. And they all leave. Jesus is not afraid like these men are afraid. And so Jesus likewise refuses to answer their question. You won't answer mine? I won't answer yours. And there's something more to this than just a refusal to follow the rules. This is more than Jesus just saying, well, I set the rules of the game, you didn't follow them, so I'm not going to follow them either. That's not what's really happening here. Here's the truth. If these men cannot accept that John is a true prophet sent from God, then they will certainly never rightly understand where the authority of Jesus comes from. Ever. If they can't recognize who John is and where John's authority came from, they're never going to understand Jesus. You see, church, this is why we need to be more thoughtful about how we try to fight cultural battles, okay? Here's what I mean. We really, 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 really want to fight against evolution being taught in schools. We know that it's not true, and we want to fight against it. But here's the reality, folks. Even if we succeed, even if we win, and they teach 
The reality of God's creation of all things in schools. Do you think that's somehow going to miraculously lead to all of these school children going, Jesus is Lord? No. They do not know God because their hearts are dead in sin. And we can show them fact after fact after fact after fact after fact after fact. It will not change a thing. We've talked about this from the Old Testament. We've talked about this with the people of Israel who see God moving in their midst and then they turn around and grumble. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of men and women and children, they will not know God. And Jesus is not going to cast pearls before swine. He knows if they don't recognize John, they can't recognize him. Because John was a prophet. And if you reject a prophet, you're rejecting the word. That's just how it goes. Because here's the truth. John had authority. Jesus has authority. But Jesus has authority in a way that is completely different from John. He has authority in a way that is completely different from anyone else. John was given authority by God. Jesus, however, has authority by his very nature. Think about how the religious leaders reacted to Jesus' question. They have power. They have authority. But they know that if they answer Jesus' question in a certain way, they're probably going to lose their power and authority and lose their very lives, right? Because their authority is a very tenuous thing. It's hanging on by threads. It could change just like that. Jesus' authority is a completely different sort of thing. It is a part of who he is. Because Jesus not only came from the Father, as John says in chapter 16, verse 28 of his gospel, it says, I, Jesus says, I came from the Father and have come into the world. Jesus not only came from the Father, Jesus is one with the Father. John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. Everything that the Father is, Jesus is. Everything that the Father has, Jesus has. His authority over all creation is naturally derived from the fact that he is God. That's it. No one gave it to him. He did not earn it by birthright. He just has it. See, kings, back in the day, used to claim authority by something they called divine right. They said, I have authority because I'm actually God. Because they even understood God has unchallengeable, unquestionable authority. Now, that wasn't true. They did not have authority by divine right, as the many, many, many deaths of kings will illustrate for us. But Jesus actually has authority by divine right. He has authority by the only true divine right, because he is the only man who ever truly is divine. You following me there? He has natural authority. So when you consider the fact that everything that the Father is, Jesus is, and everything that the Father has, Jesus has, by extension, that tells us that rejection of Jesus, the Son, is rejection of the Father. If you say, I love God, but I reject the Son, you do not love God. It's impossible. So there are some who might tell you today that us and the Jews worship the same God. We do not. Because they have rejected the Son. It doesn't matter that they use the same Old Testament that we do. They do not worship the same God that we do. 
Because our God is Christ in the flesh. That is our God. And Jesus illustrates for them this concept that if you reject the Son, you reject the Father using a parable. And that's what we see in the next section where we see the consequences of rejection. The consequences of rejection. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, says this, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So Jesus speaks to them in a parable in trying to to illustrate the kingdom of God. And remember, Jesus speaks to people in parables. Why? So they don't fully understand. That's why he does it. So he speaks to them using a parable, and he tells the story about this vineyard that has been prepared. The, the man comes, and he buys a vineyard, and he gets it all set up so that it'll produce fruit. He's talking about God's creation and God's plan. God created all things. He has a plan from the foundation of the world to bring redemption to mankind. And the vineyard is given to these tenants He's talking about God's covenant and God's promises that he made to the Israelite people. He tells them, through you I'm bringing a Messiah. And all you have to do is do this and live. Do this and live. But in reality, all they really have to do is rest upon the promises of God that a Messiah is coming. And they will be saved. But they do not do that. They do not obey. They do not do what is right, and thus they bear no fruit. And so when the time comes for the fruit to be received by the owner, he sends representatives to go and collect it. And they find no fruit. They find violence and rejection. He's talking about the prophets. How the Lord sent prophets over and over and over again to his people, saying, guys, repent. Do what is right. Serve the Lord, and will he not bless you? And over and over again, what did they do? They beat them. They mocked them. They killed them. There was no fruit to be found in the vineyard because of the rejection of the tenants that God had prepared the vineyard for. That was the expectation, to bear fruit for the glory of God. And so finally, the owner of the vineyard says, I'll send my son. They'll respect my son. Maybe they, maybe they reject these servants. They think they're better than them. <coughs> Excuse me. They, they think they're above these servants, but they, they won't do that to my son. So the owner sends his son. And what do the tenants do? <gasps> Guys, we just got rich. 
We're going to snatch this dude up and we're going to kill him. And then we're going to take his inheritance for ourselves. Because that's totally how it works, right? And so they do. They kill the son. Why? Because the tenants don't care about the owner. They don't care about the fruit. What do they want? They want the blessings. They want the stuff. They want the things that are given to them. They do not care about bearing the fruit. They have completely missed the point of their purpose. And so what does Jesus say is going to happen? What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. This is a repeated message of what Jesus has already illustrated using the fig tree. Remember? The fig tree was a representation of the Jewish people who had the appearance of fruitfulness but bore no actual fruit. And Jesus said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Here again, what is he saying? These tenants are going to be wiped out and the vineyard is going to be given to another. They're going to be, it's going to be given to someone else. What Jesus is illustrating right here in the temple, in the temple, he is saying the Jewish people have lost their place as the beacon for all mankind to see and know God. He is saying the Jewish people have outlived their usefulness because they never really had it in the first place. They served one purpose, and that was to bring forth the Messiah from their bloodline. Apart from that, they never got it right. They never got it right. And so the vineyard is going to be taken from them. The ability to bear fruit for the glory of God is going to be taken from them and given to another. And who the other is, is the church. A collection of people from every tribe and tongue and nation who love and embrace and worship the Son. Brothers and sisters, we are the vineyard. We are the ones who are called to bear fruit for the glory of God. Jesus shows this by quoting from the Psalms. Psalms 118, 22, and 23 is quoted there in our text. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. You see, the rejection of the Son of God by the Jews does not change Jesus' genuine authority. No matter who rejects Jesus, he still has the same authority because it's by his nature. Every single being in creation can say, we reject you. And Jesus is going to go, that's fine, I'm still God. You can't, you can't reject that. And not only does it not change his authority, it does not change the plan of God. In fact, this is the plan of God. It was always the plan of God that His people would be failures who would reject the Son. That was always the plan. God works in ways that we do not expect or understand in order to most fully glorify Himself. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that with God, the foolishness of men is wise. God takes what is foolish, what is useless, what is weird and strange, and says, this is for my glory. Be careful not to be so caught up 
in your own works and in your own desires that you miss what God is actually doing because that's what the Jewish people did. They were so caught up in their own status, in their own understanding, in their own beliefs about how they should do things that they missed God in the flesh standing in front of them. Because what you'll find is that rejection has a cascading impact. You see, the Word of God plainly speaks about the Messiah being a suffering servant. The Word of God plainly speaks about the stone being rejected. The Word of God plainly speaks about the death of the Savior. But the people rejected those things in favor of a political king who would make all their wildest dreams come true. And it led to outright rejection of the Son himself. If you reject the Word of God, you will reject the things of God. And if you reject the things of God, you will reject the men of God. And if you reject the men of God, you will reject the Son of God. And if you reject the Son of God, you are rejecting God himself. You cannot escape that fact. That is a domino effect that happens every single time. And so when you see people out there who claim to be Christians, whose lives are not aligning with the Word and in fact are teaching against the Word of God, guess what? They're not far off from just rejecting God altogether. You must, must, must trust and believe the Word of God above all else. Because the Word of God made flesh is Jesus Christ and He has authority over all creation. And so the question we have to ask is this. What do we owe? What do we owe? Let's look together at verse 13 through uh, 12 through 17 of, John, of Mark chapter 12, excuse me. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The leaders want to arrest Jesus because they recognize that the parable he is telling is against them. They recognize, oh, we're the tenants in this story. And so they want to arrest him, but they fear the people. Again, they're a bunch of cowards. So they leave and they send others to again try to trap him with his words. They do not learn their lesson. And so they come and they buttered Jesus up. Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. I want you to read this as though it is dripping with sarcasm, because it is. They know it. Jesus knows it. The people don't. The people think, oh, Maybe they're finally getting on board. They're finally figuring it out that this is, this is the good guy. But Jesus knows that they are being hypocritical because he calls them out 
on it. But one of the funny things about it is that in their sarcasm, they are speaking truth because everything they say there is absolutely 100% true. Jesus does not care about anyone's opinion. Jesus is true. Jesus is not swayed by appearances. And Jesus does truly teach the way of God. Every bit of that is true, even though they do not mean it. And so they ask him a question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Now, when they say lawful, they're speaking of God's law. And so this is honestly kind of a tricky question. Because on the one side, if you say no, you have a rejection of Caesar's authority. That's tantamount to rebellion. And you know what happens when you rebel against Caesar? And so they're trying to trick Jesus. Well, if he says no, then guess what? We're going to turn him over to Caesar and they're going to get him. On the other hand, you have a rejection of God's authority. You have what appears to be compromising to a corrupt government. Sound familiar? And so they, th- there's an issue here where if he says, well, yes, you must pay your taxes to Caesar, they're like, well, maybe the people will be mad because the people hate paying taxes to Caesar. They hate the whole system. They hate the tax collectors. They hate the taxes. They hate every bit of it. So if Jesus says, yeah, you got to pay your taxes, maybe all the people will finally get rid of this guy and they'll say, we don't like this guy anymore, and then we can kill him. They think they've really got him in a bind. They want him to choose between rebelling against worldly government or lacking devotion to God. And Jesus says, why put me to the test? Why put me to the test? The reason why he asked them this question is because, remember that sarcastic statement they made? If, it, if they really meant it, they wouldn't, have asked, they wouldn't have put him to the test. If he is teaching the truth about God, why are they persistently rejecting and challenging him? He knows that they're, they're, that they're full of hypocrisy. And so he says to them, give me a coin. Let me look at it. Let me look at it. Now, first of all, the first thing he's doing here is pointing out a further issue of their hypocrisy. Because if you really hate Caesar and his government and his oppression, why are you using his money? If you really want to be true, don't use it at all. So that's the first issue. But Jesus goes further and he says, whose likeness and inscription is on this? The markings on the coin indicate ownership by Caesar. It's Caesar's coin for use in Caesar's empire. And so Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The question of whether or not the ruling authorities are unjust is not addressed, but instead Jesus simply states that it is right to pay taxes that, we, that are owed. And just for the record, this is true for us as well. Pay your taxes. Don't try to cheat the government. That's a sin, okay? Pay your taxes. But that's not the the primary issue that we're dealing with today. Just giving you that as an aside. We also need to recognize that we must render to God the things that are God's. Give to Caesar the things that are his and give to God the things that are his. But what things are God's? All things are God's. Romans 1.20 says this, 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Everything in creation bears the image and likeness of God. Just like that coin bore the image and likeness of Caesar, everything in creation is marked by God. And so just like that coin belongs to Caesar, everything in creation belongs to God. And this is especially true of humanity. In Genesis 1.26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So, brothers and sisters, we belong to God in an even more significant way than creation does. And so when you want to know what belongs to God, what do we owe to God, the answer is everything. Everything that bears God's image is God's. So if you can look around and find something in creation that does not bear God's image, feel free to keep it for yourself. But I bet you won't. And so everything is owed to God. And because Christ and his Father are one, then all things belong to Christ. Jesus is not king by virtue of people shouting and laying down garments and branches on the road. He is king because he has ultimate authority over all things that is natural to himself in a way that is unlike anyone or anything else. Everything in creation bears the image of the image of the invisible God, Jesus Christ himself. And so last week we talked about how Jesus was the king. This week we're talking about how Jesus has authority over every single thing there is, and you cannot escape it. It's not just because he says, it's mine. It's because he made it. It bears his image. There is nothing that falls outside of the authority of Jesus Christ, and this includes you. This includes you. And so today I call you to surrender your all to Him. And you might be going, well, I'm already a Christian, Pastor. I've already done that. Probably not. Because if you think the moment you walked down an aisle and prayed a prayer, got dunked in a tank, was the moment you surrendered your all and then you're done, you got it all wrong. Because Jesus talks about how you must lay down your life. And that is not a one-time thing. That is an every moment of every day thing. When you feel the urge to fight against God's authority and do it your own way, rise up, put yourself to death. Because Christ has authority over all things. All of your life belongs to Him. And that is true whether you willingly submit or not. But please understand that there will come a day where resistance will be futile. You can fight and fight and fight and fight, and guess what? One day there ain't going to be no more fight. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But if you keep fighting, when that day comes, it's too late. There is willing subjection and then there is forceful subjection. And if you wait until forceful subjection, you face his wrath for all eternity. And so my encouragement to you today as we close is this. Don't delay. If you are here today 
and you do not know Jesus Christ, if he is not the king of your life as he is the king over all creation, don't delay. If you leave this room, you are not guaranteed another breath. You are not guaranteed another day. And if you die and stand before him apart from Christ, you are not going to have a happy eternity. You will face his wrath forever and ever and ever without end. And I'm not trying to scare you into salvation. I am telling you the truth. When Jesus tells parables, like about the tenants in the vineyard, you notice what he says? That the, the, the owner of the vineyard is going to come and destroy them. It's not sunshine and rainbows. It's not a pat on the back going, oh well champ, you did your best, come on in. That is not how this works. A holy and righteous God does not permit sin to come into his presence. His kingdom is free from sin. And so today, I call upon you, I plead with you, I implore you, I beg you to repent of your sin and believe the gospel. That the Son of God took on human flesh to come and live a perfect life to die for our sins. That we might have life in him. And if you have questions about that, if you want to know more, I will be glad. I will be thrilled to talk with you. I will be glad to pray with you and share with you how you too can know Christ as Lord. And if you're here today and you already know Jesus, if you are here today and you are a Christian, my encouragement to you is to search your heart. Look for areas that you say, nah, Jesus, not that part, that's for me. How I spend my money, that's for me. How I deal with my family, that's for me. How I raise my kids, that's for me. What I watch on TV, that's for me. Christian, there is no part of your life that you can say, that's for me, not you, Jesus. And so I encourage you, believers, root out sin in your hearts today. Make Christ Lord of all things. Because he is. Let's pray together. Father, please grant salvation to your people today. Father, help us to root out sin from ourselves, to recognize you as good and glorious. Help us, Lord, to exalt Christ in ourselves, to turn from our sin and to repent and believe the gospel. If there's anyone here who does not know Jesus, Lord, I pray that today you would save them. Draw them to yourself by the work of your Holy Spirit through the blood of Christ. Be with us as we sing together, Lord. Use it to exalt yourself, to sanctify us. In Christ's name, amen.